I actually did get kicked out of a Trump rally in, in Green Bay, Wisconsin. He was in the middle of his speech, and I think he called Bill Clinton a, a rapist. And I just started shouting back at him, no, you're a rapist. You're, and I just went into it. And you could hear me very clearly on on the uh, TV uh, from where I was before everyone knew what was going on. Then everyone starts shouting USA, and I, I kind of get drowned out, and I get escorted out. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Sam Frank, who spent time at Stack Labs working to help Democratic state parties with technology. I was curious to hear about what Stack had done and what that organization was about. Sam has an interesting history in progressive political technology as well, having worked on the technology for the Women's March and March for Our Lives and for NGP Van on their product team. So we spoke about his career, including his early attempts at entrepreneurship and the path he took to product manager, a role he's currently taken with Auth0, which produces tools for authentication and authorization for other tech companies. After our interview, upon the news of NGP Van Every Action being acquired with two other firms at a large valuation by a new private equity firm, Sam issued a number of provocative tweets indicating that he had an ax to grind with his previous employer. So I called him back to discuss that matter as well. So if you're interested in the players in the world of progressive political technology, you'll want to listen. After a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Sam Frank, now of Auth0. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hi, Sam. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. So I'm Sam Frank. I uh, live in Chicago, Illinois, and uh, I actually grew up in the, the Chicago suburbs in, in River Forest, which shares a township with Oak Park. I uh, went to public schools out there at OPRF and, and whatnot. And my family's been involved in, in uh, Illinois and, and Chicago politics for some time, um, kind of grew up with stories uh, because my grandfather was, I think what we would call a bundler today, but they didn't really have those terms back then. He kind of was a, a rags to riches to rags story. Uh, he he built a little business empire that ended up later in his life falling apart. But during his his heyday, he would um, help with campaigns. He served as finance chair on on some well known campaigns and worked to kind of improve Chicago politics with some big names like Abner Mikva and Harold Washington. And so my mom grew up with politicians at the dinner table every once in a while uh, who would stop by and, and want to kind of tap into that donor network. And then 
kind of bless her. She, she watched uh, her inheritance fall apart in, in her 20s uh, before I was born. But I got to, to know my grandfather uh, for a bit of time uh, when I was younger. And so I always grew up, you know, wanting to be part of politics um, and um, wanting to be involved. But I also grew up being a tech nerd. <laughs> so uh, I would go around uh, River Forest and install Wi-Fi networks for, for local professionals and, and help them with their home setups and, and kind of earn some money that way. And so although I studied political science in college, when you come out of the job market right after the, the 2008 crash, tech and finance that, that wanted um, those skills were, were more valuable than the, the political ones at that time. It's often the case that if there's politics in the family and there's politics around the dinner table, that, that that seeps into the blood a little bit, I guess. And it's interesting when it crosses with, with the interest in tech. I mean, that's in a certain sense what happened with me and what's happened with a lot of other guests on this show. I'm assuming you went off to college where you said you studied political science, but tell me a little about that. Yeah. So I went to, to Knox College in, in Galesburg, Illinois. My family was pretty squarely in the, the middle class, slightly in the upper middle class, and, and Knox ended up giving me the best scholarship money. Um, and so, you know, my my college choice was a financial decision, but, you know, it was a great school out in uh, rural Illinois that you could focus on studying. It had some great faculty and professors. And funny enough, it was the site of one of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, uh, you know, forever ago. And so, Anytime there's a Senate election uh, in Illinois, they they do one of the the debates there to kind of recreate that atmosphere. And so I actually got to meet uh, Dick Durbin at Knox. You know, has some other famous political grads like John Podesta, who put a lot of effort into the school. There's a long history of politicos giving commencement speeches at Knox College. Obama did. Um, the Clintons both did. A lot of other, you know brand names because of the work that, that John Podesta has done uh, in the political space. And so, you know, to me, it seemed being interested in politics and kind of the best financial college opportunity, it was the place to be. Um, I had a good time there. So you, you chose Knox over the School of Hard Knocks. <laughs> no, the School of Hard Knocks came later uh, <laughs> through, through some trials by fire uh, in, the, in the political space. So tell me about... Uh, your kind of entry into the job market after college, what what was the sequence of things that you tried? Yeah. So when I was in college, I did some internships at my um, dad's employer. They are a commodities trading firm in Chicago uh, that focused on algorithmic trading and technology. And so I was a you know, help desk IT intern, like, you know, helping the traders with their computers and things like that. And that, and that was an interesting experience because it really kind of acclimated me to an office environment and the problems that, that happen day to day in, in uh, applied technology. You know, out of school, my economics degree was the most valuable. And so I got hired as a pricing analyst at an organization and, and ended up kind of automating my job away. It was a frozen pizza manufacturer. So it was kind of interesting to see the, the world uh, from manufacturing's perspective. I took a job that I thought was full time and turned it into something that took like hours a week. Uh, they were very interested in that. They were like, well, can you go start looking at other things in the business and, and start making um, optimizations there? And, you know, once that started, I kind of caught this bug of like, there's not great technology for the food industry. I, you know, 
very self-confident, thought I could, you know, do my own startup, uh, tried to tried to do my own startup called Food Source Online. I know a great name for a modern tech company, uh, still has online in the name. Hired some some friends from school uh, to help me build it and uh, <laughs> didn't go well. Uh, we had a lot of interest from food companies that kind of agreed with the vision, but you know, getting a, a company off the ground is is one percent idea and ninety nine percent execution. I had no idea what I was doing, and so after a couple of years of struggling at that, um, I went into technology consulting. Let's hang on that because I'm a big fan of trying things like that. And when I started my company, I knew very little also about running a business or starting a business. What do you think it was about the execution that was so difficult? Like, what were the main obstacles that you ran into. And I'm sure you learn from that. A lot of times you learn more from things that don't go as easily as things that do. Yeah. I mean, I learned a lot. The The vision of the product was what I know now is a marketplace product and it, it has network effects, which for a product take time to build. You know, any any product that has a network effect, it, it's generally not valuable for the first few users who join it because there is no network there to leverage. And so you have to figure out a way to offer value to the first few customers who come on in more of a unique way. And so I did kind of start to intuitively figure that out without having the mental structures to actually attack that problem. You know, I tried to create what I learned later was an MVP, but it was still too broad of a product. It, it would have taken, you know, a dozen engineers a year to build. And I had two that this wasn't even their biggest concern. And so I needed to go find you know, more partners, and I needed to kind of hone that that MVP down to a smaller product um, that I could get out the door. And then there was just the process of building technology. You know, there's all these frameworks out there on how you should run a team and how you should work together. And everyone at the company was just out of school. We had no idea about any of that stuff. You know, things took forever and we didn't know why. We didn't have a backlog. We didn't have all the things that you generally have. Um, to keep things moving. And so, you know, I would go out there, I'd talk to businesses about what we were building. They're like, oh, that's great. Like, yeah, tell us when you're ready. <laughs> I'm like, uh, well, would, do you want to give us some money? No, we're not going to give you money. You're not ready yet. Uh, and so, you know, that willingness to pay and, and when we had something ready to go, it was it was just too far of a gulf. Um, and we didn't have the capital in the bank um, to go out and hire some really good professional developers, um, which my friends ended up turning into. I mean, they were, they were early in their careers. And so, you know, we just... I didn't have the right team at the table for the idea that I wanted to build. Did you raise money for it? Some friends and family, um, you know, got some commitments, um, you know, tried to go to, I actually got into 1871, um, Chicago's tech incubator. The first time I, I tried to apply, they, they turned me down. Didn't think I was far enough yet. Second time I made some progress, got some seed capital, was able to pay the developers reapplied. Uh, that was a great network. So I started to learn a lot more about what it takes to build a tech company. And that's kind of also when I realized like, all right, this is a long way to go. And I'm going to be in mom's basement for a while before I figure this out. And so, you know, do I want to go get the skills um, to make this successful or do I want to keep on struggling? I went and uh, got a job at Jimmy John's delivering sandwiches during that time to try to have some pocket change uh, as the founder. I did get some traction and I was pretty far down the road of what a startup would do. But again, everything was a struggle. Everything was new. I didn't have the experience of going through this at all. Um, and that made everything pretty difficult. Was it hard on the ego to then try to go into the workforce after you sort of had a 
title and people working for you, at least a couple? Um, you know, it was, it definitely, I was like knocked down a few rungs, I think is the best way to say it. Like, you know, I was maybe, maybe my ego uh, couldn't fit through the right doors uh, at that point. And and I needed to kind of shrink it down and and realize what I was good at and what I wasn't good at. And so it definitely was a moment of self-reflection. You know, my perspective, I had some good advisors that I was able to bring on and, and some of them said, well, go and find out more about technology. If you don't know how to build a tech company, then go join a tech company, right? Like see how other people have done it. And that seemed like sound advice to me. And it's funny, I think about going back and retrying it every day, uh, not every day, but a decent amount at this point uh, because of the skills that have gotten built since then. Well, it's uh, like your interest in politics. It's, it's a bug that you get. There's also a lot of rewards for people who do have the luck and the, and the execution to have it go well. It's a risky endeavor always, but I can imagine why it would sit out there for you. Yeah. Back, back then I didn't have much to lose, right? You know, I was just out of school, uh, not many assets. Now I've got a mortgage and you know, the, the risk and considerations a lot different. Yeah. You started to say you went on to, what was that? Yeah. So Personify um, is an association management software company. And so this is software for the American Bar Association, the largest professional associations in the country. They talk about their product as, as any member-centric organization, which is adjacent and familiar to those in, in political and, and nonprofit technology, but it's a specific type of nonprofit. It's kind of like a pseudo-union type of technology, right? These are professionals. They're all at different businesses. They have shared interests in you know, regulation and sharing knowledge. That was a big thing and, and setting standards um, for what it means to be part of that profession. And so these associations did have kind of unique business cases that that purpose-built software helped them with. But Personify was built on an older model of a technology company where you built a core product that you knew needed to get customized, and then you would implement it with these big implementation teams over the number of years. The profit for Personify all came in that customization process. And that's how technology was built for you know, 25 years. You'd give someone a, you know, an IBM installation and you'd charge them services on it. I was part of those implementation teams that would look at the unique requirements of the association and then figure out how do we change the core technology to meet those customizations and, and work with them. But the business had been sold to private equity and there was now metrics and numbers around profitability. And so we were constantly under pressure to ship billable hours. And sometimes that put pressure on you to make up solutions that weren't necessarily in the best interest of the client. Like, let's make a customization here because you've got this small problem. This customization is going to cost a ton of money, but it, it will solve that problem. But is that really what you need, right? Is that, is, can you solve that problem in a, in a more efficient way? And since the incentives weren't lined up perfectly, um, you know, personify struggle. And they recognize this as a problem. There was, I actually should go back and check kind of where they're at with this, but they wanted to build what is a SaaS company, right? This is the, the newer model where you send out your software, it's configurable by the end user, it's, it's self-service, and you don't need kind of these large implementation processes and customizations. And so they had the right goals. It's just very hard to shift a business from one model to another. And I just really wasn't willing to stick it out with them while they made that change. Let me ask you one question about Personify. Because what, what I find interesting is 
when a company that's established and been, you know, an ongoing concern and you hire a person and they see problems, you obviously had a critical eye when you were looking at, at this company as someone who hadn't built it. Now it's interesting to think about if you're running a company, how do you obtain the value of a critical employee who can see things that maybe you can't or who can see things that you know, but also who might uh, not really understand always all of the intricacies that got you there. Like it's easy for young folks to be critical, right? And not necessarily credit the, the people who got something to that form. How do you think about like your role from the perspective of being, you know, on the line and what people should do to make best use of somebody like you? I would say, you know, looking back at it, Sarah Schmall, who was the the VP of our department, did, I think, do a very good job of that. You know, she, the business recognized the problems. And so they weren't, wasn't necessarily bringing new problems. I was just, you know, to your point, critical and, and antsy about them. Um, and so, you know, she formed a working group within the department around how to shift some of the business practices to be more lightweight and to address some of these problems. But with any change, there were you know, members of the organization who were quite comfortable with the old system. It's something they knew. It's something that they they could operate in because they they did it every day for, you know, some of them were there for for 20 years. And so dealing with that change management was not a skill set that I had at that time. Like it was it was butting heads and it was arguments and everything seemed to move slow. But you know, with it being the first kind of mid-sized tech company, change takes time. Things don't move as fast as you want them at 25, 24. <laughs> I know from having run a, a tech company for a little while, that frustration is felt at the top too, like in spades. It's sometimes just the nature of change that maybe nobody knows how to accelerate it to the point where everyone would be satisfied. Yeah. And I mean, it's funny, we'll probably get to it at some point, but I would say the company that was most similar to Personify in my career uh, was NGP Van, uh, which I, I spent some time at, which I'm sure we're going to touch on. Yeah. So what was next for you after Personify? Yeah. So after Personify, I did a lot of research and one of the terms that got thrown out around a lot at Personify is we need to be more agile, right? This is something that the businesses are constantly grappling with is, is agile transformation and, and agile software development. And so one of the working groups that Sarah had put together to try and solve some of these problems was an agile implementation team. And so I was doing a lot of research for Personify on agile transformation. And I said, well, you know, the job I really want is product manager, right? This, this seems to be the job that I'm trying to do. I'm, I'm building these customizations. I'm assessing these businesses. I'm trying to turn that into requirements for an engineering team. That's a product manager in, in Scrum and, and agile um, organizations. And so I'm going to go try to get a, a product manager job. Um, and so I, I went out there, I started interviewing um, an opinion lab, which was uh, another Chicago-based tech company uh, that does voice of customer software. Uh, this is software that lives on a, an organization's website and um, application that says like, hey, we're looking for your feedback. Please let us know what you think. Uh, rate us on these different things. It's actually one of the first JavaScript-based implementations of a service that lives outside of your website. So when you have a website, you have a server that's hosting it, a web server. And then sometimes it can say, hey, I want to go talk to some other web servers to add some pieces to this website that's not on my web server. 
And that is how the internet works today. Like that's everywhere. Um, this was actually one of the first companies that did that in the late 90s. They were an outside service that would add to your website uh, from their own web servers. And so it was interesting because this this group really built cutting edge technology in the late 90s and then you know had patents on that type of technology, built it into a business that served you know the largest banks in the world, the largest brand names in the world. And so it was fun because you got to work with you know the biggest industries while still being kind of a mid-sized tech company. It's a very niche product, right? This is not a product that is Google. <laughs> it's not going to have wide availability. And so they were constantly making resource calls on like, you know, do we build this thing next? Do we repurpose that thing? And when you have technology that was first built in the 90s, there's a lot of old stuff left in your technology stack. And so it was grappling with what the industry calls tech debt, where you're requirements have gotten you to a point where the way that you implemented your solution for your old requirements no longer meets the needs of your new requirements. And the delta between the ideal solution and what you have today is what people call tech debt. And that manifests itself in slower development times. You have to avoid features. You can't do what you want to. And new startups that don't have a stack can build it the ideal way the first time. And so Opinion Lab was seeing a lot of competitive pressure and was trying to defend its market share. And I kind of joined the organization in the middle of that. They gave me a role um, managing most of the legacy technology that kind of no one wanted to <laughs> because everyone wanted to be building the new stuff. And I got to kind of manage a lot of what was the core of the business, um, but was kind of you know technology that had been built in mostly 2004, 2005, and now was getting added on in, in 2015 and 2016. And the struggles around adding, you know, anomaly detection on a stack that was built in 2005 was really interesting because that's a brand new heavy data science technology generally built on a, on a stack that, that was built past 2012. And so that really changed my skill set in terms of, of technical skill set. I had to get very deep in the technical weeds with the developers on what could and couldn't get done for that product. And I had been working with developers now for a couple of years, but I started programming. I started, I actually have code that uh, lived in, in Opinion Labs product for a while and kind of got my hands dirty and really learned what it meant to kind of operationalize a mature stack that was at internet scale, right? I mean, Opinion Labs product lived on Walmart's website, Chase Bank's website, um, hotels.com served it as their 404 page. Please give us feedback now that we're down. <laughs> Whenever that would happen, there would be a little bit of a panic in the operations team as as we kind of dealt with that traffic. There was a major business outage uh, that happened while I was there that was over my stack. Um, and so kind of managing through a crisis became a, a skill set that I had to pick up while I was there. And so that was definitely a transformational you know, career experience and working in technology and, and working with incredible engineers who you know knew their craft um, so well. But because the business was under pressure, the ownership decided to sell and they sold to, to Varent, which is a couple billion dollar publicly traded tech company um, with different ideals and goals. And you know, Varent has a huge security business. And so, uh, you know, we all got these weird background checks and, you know, you felt a little bit, this is not the organization I joined. Um, and that was right when the 2016 election was happening, uh, which, you know, further was a transformational experience. I would just guess that you were not pro-Trump in that election. 
No, I had done some work in politics before that. I had knocked on doors in 2010 uh, when I was at Knox. Um, you know, I had knocked on doors for Bernie um, in Illinois, and I was so anxious about the Trump election um, that I was going to do more than I had ever done. I ended up going to um, the Chicago Trump rally that very much made news headlines uh, at the time uh, because you know Trump didn't come. Uh, he he cited security reasons. You know, the story behind that is a bunch of UIC students, University of Illinois at Chicago. Uh, where the event was, um, got to the event site very early and all sat in the same section of the stadium. And you can imagine, you can pull a protester out here and there, but if there's a couple hundred people in the same section of a stadium, you're not getting rid of them. And so he was either going to have to give a speech with a bunch of students shouting at him, or he was not going to show up and he chose not to show up. But there were scuffles, there were some fist fights, and that's what made the news on, on loop every day. Um, but being there was a much different experience. I, I dressed as a young Republican. I had, a, I had a nice jacket on. I didn't know about the UIC plan in, until I kind of watched it happen. Um, and so I was in a different section of the stands intera- interacting with Trump supporters. And I had you know a protest shirt on underneath uh, my button down and my suit jacket that I was going to you know eventually plan to get kicked out and, and try to make a statement. I ended up not having to because of the work of those UIC students. But after you know, we found out that he wasn't showing up, it was kind of a celebration. There was like a party in the streets. Uh, and so it was, it was a weird, weird moment where you saw kind of this look of fear in the Trump supporters' eyes that the president decided not to show up because of security reasons. And at the same time, the UIC students were partying. It was just this bizarre dichotomy. And so I kind of went out to the street party and, and ended up getting interviewed by a Politico reporter. <laughs> and I've got a, a good quote in Politico from uh, from that rally. Um, and then I ended up doing trying to do it again. I actually did get kicked out of a Trump rally in, in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, went up there, you know, mingled with Trump supporters. It, it, what people don't realize about a Trump rally is there's a lot of warm-up acts. You spend a couple hours <laughs> listening uh, to some really bizarre stuff before you get your chance to, to try to protest. And so uh, that one, he was in the middle of his speech. Uh, and I think he called Bill Clinton a, a rapist. And I just started shouting back at him, no, you're a rapist. You're, and I just went into it. And you could hear, I mean, I'm a big guy. And I got a loud voice. And you could hear me very clearly on, on the uh, TV uh, from where I was before everyone knew what was going on. Then everyone starts shouting USA and I, I kind of get drowned out uh, and I get escorted out. And then, you know, claim to fame uh, when the crowd quiets down, Trump starts making fun of me. Oh, that, that little quiet voice over in the corner and then the USA. Yeah, I love that. Uh, and there's a great recording uh, that I've kept uh, of that interaction. But, you know, it was scary. The people around me reacted uh, to that uh, not not well. And, you know, the security came and, and threw me out and... <laughs> bit of a troublemaker. When the election results came in and, and, you know, I live in Chicago and you can pretty much guess everyone's politics. Uh, my coworkers knew that I had been politically involved. I mean, I had driven up the previous weekends to Wisconsin and knocked on doors, um, in Kenosha County, which is the County that's right on the border with Illinois. Um, and so they're like, well, what do we do now? Like, you know, what, what do we do, Sam? And I'm like, the election's over, <laughs> like too late. Um, and this, I think, was a lot of Americans reaction after the the election, which is like, what do I do now? And so we met at a, a bar and organized. Uh, we were, you know, this really good set of tech workers at a, a well-run tech company. And so we decided to start offering all the new organizations that were spinning up 
uh, technology help. So something good came of that, I guess. Well, certainly there was an amazing flowering of new organizations in of people who were trying to resist the administration, trying to take back the Congress and the presidency. A lot of people I've talked to, I know that you got involved in the Women's March in particular, which was you know one of the hopeful days uh, post-election. Well, our, my wife and I and kids and some friends were downtown in D.C. and pretty moved by it. What was your involvement there? Well, it's interesting. I, I mean, I want to hear hear your experience uh, too, because you know, my, mine was so different than the average marchers. We had formed this group. We called it Blue Boost Technology, uh, and we you know that was the goal. We were gonna we were gonna boost the blue side. Uh, and so we started reaching out to these new organizations. The first group we reached out to was um, Shannon Coulter's uh, organization, Grab Your Wallet, that was trying to get Trump brands pulled from the shelves because of the things that they've said and done. And so we worked with her to help her with her website and her technology. And then, you know, we were looking for other groups. And so um, we just cold emailed <laughs> the Women's March. We're like, hey, we're we're a group of technologists. We just want to well, help you out. What do you need? You know, it was funny. We didn't hear anything for a while. Uh, we were trying to figure out other things to do. And we just get an email back. Yeah, we need a lot of help. Tell us about your organization. And, and so we explained it. And they said, that's great. You know, we probably need a, a CTO or, or lead technologist at this point. But every department has to be led by a woman. And so we had two women in the group that we asked, like, do you, you want to go serve as the, the technology lead for the Women's March? And one of them was buying a house. Uh, one of them I didn't know at the time was looking for a new job. And, and she didn't you know, think it was a great time to do that and commit to that. I reached out to my sister who was doing uh, project management for for her company for technology issues. And so we ended up being a, a brother-sister duo on the uh, the Women's March. She led uh, digital products, as we called it, and I was digital operations. Um, and so she sat in with the leadership group every day and, and listened to kind of the struggles that the march was going through, would prioritize those problems and then be like, all right, Sam, what can we do? What are our options to be able to solve some of these there's a lot of politics in that march. Uh, there, there's a lot of stuff you can read in the press. Um, you know, it was fun to focus on those problems. And one of the the more interesting things about that experience was, you know, I didn't know the solutions in the space. You know, I hadn't been in political technology yet, and so all I knew were the problems that the women's march was dealing with. It was just how do I solve this problem as fast and as easily as possible uh, to move on to the the next ten thousand problems that we have, and we used a lot of, of like open source Google technology. The job kind of became also just organizing people who wanted to help. We had so many groups kind of come with what they had. Women who code, you know, stepped up and said, what do you need us for? And so we started plugging them into the website and, and making website upgrades. Uh, Bernie Sanders volunteer alums had all these different little applications that had helped with um, his election. And you know, a march is not dissimilar from a campaign where, you know, instead of the goal of getting people to the polls, your goal is to get them to show up to your event. We reskinned and, and deployed and reused a lot of um, Bernie's kind of toolkit of apps that his volunteers had built for him. Um, and then we started getting, um, well, so then there's the sister marches themselves, which you know, a lot of people don't know the, I mean, the sister marches and, and the flagship DC march weren't the same organization for a long time. Um you know, the co-chairs of the, the DC group were focused on making DC the largest march possible. And there were some women in many different communities who said, well, we can't make it to DC. We want to throw our own marches locally. And so the largest of them were, were Boston and they got some institutional philanthropy investment to help 
coordinate these sister marches and they immediately came to the the co-chairs and i was i didn't even know about this until later i heard all these stories kind of secondhand but um there was a discussion on whether we want the flagship march to be the biggest thing or whether we want all these additional marches and so how that affected the technology is there was two different websites there was different stacks that were being worked on between the two different organizations and the call was made for a week or two not to partner because what was thought is if everyone has their own local march in their town, no one's going to come to DC and, and that would be, you know, a disaster. But the women of the sister marches, they wouldn't have it. Uh, they just kept on organizing and eventually it became inevitable that it, that was going to go well. And, and that's when we partnered and integrated the websites and integrated the stacks and started working closely together. Um, but it was fun kind of as a, a male ally because I didn't have a, I didn't have any say over policy or strategy. It was like, what do you need the computers to do every day? Um, and so Tina got to kind of deal with all of those problems, my sister. I interviewed Bob Bland about it and got some sense that there was factions. And certainly as they went forward to try to do it again in subsequent years, it wasn't that it was pretty challenging, but it was an amazing thing that got pulled off and amazing energy and hopefulness. I just felt surrounded by people of love for the country and for each other. And it's, it still sits with me now. I understand you went to a company it was called Hilo around about then. What was that? Yeah. So, um, you know, after the women's March, there was a lot of postmortem still happening about the election and the women's March was seen as one of the largest success stories while the election was kind of seen as, you know, one of the, the worst defeats for the left. And so, you know, while the co-chairs went off and had their public facing, um, you know, interviews about what went right, what went wrong, the functionaries at different levels got invited to kind of send these postmortems behind the scenes. And so, um, I got connected through Rafi Castillo to, um, who I know you've interviewed, um, to, a, he did a lot of work kind of on those Bernie alums apps, uh, that we reskinned, um, for, for the women's March. Um, knew of this kind of postmortem happening with some funders in San Francisco, and they're very tech focused, and so they kind of wanted to hear about you know the tech that was happening. I didn't get a formal invite. I talked to one of the organizers, and he said, "Oh, that'd be interesting. Can you make it to San Francisco?" But like, I didn't have a ticket or anything, and so I kind of did a pseudo crash where I showed up without any credentials and just said, "You know, <laughs> Deepak sent me. Can can I get in?" And they're like, "Sure." <laughs> and so I crashed a conference uh, and met the founders of Hilo and, and they were building this platform for organizing digital communities and kind of working with these different factions, as you mentioned, and how do you collaborate in a very messy left-wing environment? I bought into the vision um, that they were trying to do. I saw how it would have helped um, uh, you know, the Women's March organize. I saw the potential of it. And so now that I had execution skills, I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll help you execute. And so I left uh, Varent at the time, you know, post acquisition, it was still working for the opinion lab unit of Varent, uh, and, and picked up my life and moved to California to, to help Hilo out. I got the sense that Hilo wasn't completely successful. What was your experience there? Like, yeah, so this gets to, this happens at almost every startup. The founder has a vision, uh, and the founder wants that vision to be successful, but getting to that vision is difficult. Same problem I had at my startup. Uh, and so you have to make compromises and you have to understand how do I get something that gets traction and is viable. And so he had way more capital than I ever had to work with. We had a you know full engineering team. They were great Silicon Valley startup engineers. They built you know multiple companies. They were very good at what they did. 
but the scope of what we were trying to build, I mean, we were trying to compete with Facebook in certain regards. We were trying to compete with Slack in certain regards. We were trying to compete with these like billion dollar enterprises. And we needed to figure out what was our true little differentiator. And, and that's what I was trying to press for was like, let's build something small. And there's the idea you build a skateboard and then you build a bicycle and then you build an automobile and then you kind of like scale up your, your business from there. And just like I didn't know how to make a small piece of my business, he wanted everything. He wanted a web app. He wanted everything to be responsive design. He wanted all these different requirements. And we executed pretty well, but we we got to a point where we had a very well networked Slack, right? Like we had like this this kind of like this chat app, this Slack pseudo social network that let different factions kind of work together, but it was incredibly expensive, right? Like you, you have to charge your first customers a lot if you want to be sustainable based on just your first customers. And nonprofits don't have that much money in the bank. And so then you've got to figure out how do we monetize? And our customers that we started talking to were making a decision between do we use the free version of Slack or Facebook groups, or do we pay an immense amount of money to use something that's maybe only a little better? They made the obvious call. We'll make it work with, with Slack and we'll make it work with Facebook. And so then the decision became, you know, do we go out and try to do another funding round and go to the next step? And and that decision was getting made right right when the March for Our Lives started. And, you know, by this point, I had lost a lot of product battles and I was just like, I want to go and help Uh, the Parkland students. I had an opportunity to do that. And so I took a leave uh, from Hilo and and went and jumped into that. (laughs) Your second big march, how was that similar or different? Yeah, I mean, different in in tone and tenor, uh, right? I mean, there. I would say both marches were based off a of tragedy, right? The tragedy of the the twenty sixteen election, and then followed. And the Parkland was was the tragedy at Parkland. You know, it was interesting. We were a small team at Hilo, but our our lead designer uh, Justin w- went to Parkland, um, and so we had like a personal connection immediately. And our intern Jesse actually ended up volunteering very quickly to to help lead the Oakland sibling march. And so I was kind of getting involved before I really got involved. And I got a call out of the blue um, from Phil Arananu, who knew of the work at the Women's March and kind of got connected to the group that was helping uh, the Parkland students and said, well, if you're trying to do this in the timeline that you're trying to do it, you need someone who's already done it before. I was one of the names. There's a lot of published numbers around who gave what to the march in the early days, you know, Spielberg and Oprah, $500,000 led to a million conspiracy theories. The only qualification they had on the check they signed was, please go hire people who know what they're doing. <laughs> that was that was the one qualification they had. Um, and so I was one of those people that they hired um, with some of that, that early donations. How did that march come off from a tech standpoint? Yeah. So, I mean, with both marches, Right. There's like the primary goals of like as big, make it as big as possible. So raise awareness, Internet marketing, all that. Um, There is, you know, make sure it's as safe as possible. So there's some interesting technologies that got deployed around communications on site and make it as meaningful as possible. So generate, you know, quality content for the people who show up. Um, So like day of guides and mobile guides and things like that. And then the last kind of priority was data capture. So you have this bright spotlight on you for a period of time. And, you know, Parkland students were very smart. They knew that this was not going to last. And so we have to capture as much data about the people who are interested in this while we have the spotlight on us before that spotlight goes away. And so spinning up, you know, different forms and, and, you know, different 
data capture technologies to get people to sign up for things so that we can keep on communicating with them after the march is a huge goal of these marches. And that manifests itself in you know, action network, every action, those kind of um, digital tool sets that help you build out a website and, and have forms and capture data. It was uh, an event app. So so in the Women's March, uh, an organization called Double Dutch uh, came to us and, and let us use their event app. And it was funny, it was December of the Women's March and, and the co-chairs asked, could we get an app for the march? I'm like, what's the budget? And they're like, Ten thousand dollars. I'm like, no, <laughs> you can't get an can't get an event app, an enterprise event app for the largest you know event in in U.S. history <laughs> for that much money. And so we didn't have an, an option. And, and Double Dutch came to him and said, "We'll give it to you for free. Like we just want to help." It was the um, chief legal counsel, who was a woman, and, and the chief uh, engineer both made it happen at their company. They both said, "We want this to happen." We went back to them for the March for Our Lives and, and asked, would they do that? And the CEO was like, I've got two small kids. Like this this hit home when it got reported. And so he gave us, again, use of the app for free, which we you know loaded in speakers lists, maps, like all the different things that you would need when you wanted to attend an event. And it also gave us this great option to capture data, right? Like any event attendee that signed up, you know, we could get the, their email sign up and, and send them messages. And it's also a big safety thing. You know, there's there's only so many ways you can communicate with a crowd. And so if they have an if a bunch of people have an app in their pocket and something happens, you can send a push notification to all of them about, you know, trying to establish some order in, in, in what could be a chaotic situation. Um, and so that was a big part of the stack. And then a lot of like, you know, interacting with social media and, and social media strategies, you know. I would say the Women's March had a great social media team that knew you know, how to interact. And most of it was planned on Facebook. Um, with the March for Our Lives, you know, the, the Parkland students themselves were Twitter masters. You know, they, they knew how to, to use all the new technology. They used it every day uh, in their, their personal lives. So we weren't worried about awareness. We were trying to worry about like logistics and, and getting people who normally aren't on Twitter or aren't like on the platforms where the Parkland students were to be aware of what was going on. And so there was like a lot of social media strategy and, and pointing people towards, um, you know, their content uh, and recasting their content in a wider net. How did you end up at the, at NGP van? After Hilo collapsed and, and the, and the March for our lives ended, I did some independent consulting and I was like, you know, I've consulted before I've done these things. Like I can build a business. Uh, so I, I tried business round two and consultancy is much different than a product startup. Uh, I got some clients, uh, enough to cover my bare expenses, but, but not really enough to do much more than that. And, uh, I was living in Oakland at the time because that's, that's where Hilo was based and Bay area rent is incredibly expensive. <laughs> and I was kind of watching my bank account. I stepped back from from trying to do that pretty quickly and started applying for jobs. And I looked at NGP Van and I said, well, this is like a dream job, right? Like this is the center of this ecosystem. It's the largest technology provider to the Democratic Party. You know, this is the place I want to be. Um, and so they had an opening for a product manager and I applied and went through the process and and was the one who, who got the job. You sort of previewed that earlier in comparing it to some of the problems that personify, but what was your experience like on the product team at NGP Van? Yeah, so I mean, we all know, and and you've talked about this so much on different podcasts. It's very hard to build a company in the political technology space. It's a very weird market. Campaign gets all of its funding in the last month. Um, 
before it just falls off the face of, of the earth at, on election day. And, you know, technology's costs are all front loaded. They're all about building the software with developers and implementing it at a campaign, right? So all of these costs are front loaded before the organization ever gets value from it. And so you have this market gap where all of your costs are early and all of your revenue is at the very end. And how do you monetize that and keep it going? And so both Van and NGP, and you could talk more about this than I could, made decisions around how to operate in this market so that you could be successful. And so in the, on the Van side, they went with you know enterprise level contracts with um, different organizations, the DNC kind of being uh, the main the main buyer there. And so price becomes a very big sticking point between technology companies and and the space. Um, and that forces the technology companies to make decisions about how they implement technology if if price is always a constraint. Um, and some of those decisions over time led to you know some some compromises being made in the stack uh, that made it very hard to build um, certain things like certain types of APIs, certain types of reporting and analytics. And so that creates, you know, user expectation differences where, where users are you know, used to using Gmail and they're used to using all of these, you know, wide access products. And then they move over to NGP Vans products, which are were more purpose built for specific use cases. And they wonder why, you know, some workflows aren't optimized and some screens have been around since since 2008, 2009. And the decisions about whether do we update that or do we try to tackle some new problems um, kind of always cause contention uh, because of those price constraints. Sounds like you felt a little frustrated with what landed on your plate. NGP Van was still learning about API products, right? Like how do you how do you turn an API into an actual monetized product? They had a strategy around it. It was very expensive. A lot of the partners were not not very happy with it. Eventually Stu made the call to, you know, demonetize the APIs, right? Like if everyone's complaining about our price on this one, and it's really not making us that much money. Like, let's offer APIs for free, which is great because the, everyone loves that decision. You know, you're using a product and now it's free. That's great. But from a business perspective, businesses don't invest in, in things they don't make money on. And so, if I'm the, the API product manager and APIs are free now, you know, how much investment is going into that? And APIs are are part of a modern stack and built off of some of the technology that's around uh, in in kind of older stacks is, is very hard. Um, and so the engineers were struggling with some of the requirements and there was a lot of kind of heated battles on what we could and couldn't do. And so, you know, there was a question of like, is this the most effective place I can be? We were a year out from the 2020 election, you know, it was weighing on everyone's minds. Um, and that's, that's when stack came to me and kind of gave me a, an opportunity to be at an organization that potentially could uh, move faster and, and make more of an impact in, in the coming election. You're speaking about Stack Labs. What is Stack Labs? Stack Labs' mission is to elect Democrats up and down the ballot. So it shares the mission of, of like a lot of different organizations in the space. What's unique about Stack is it does it in the lens of working with the state parties and kind of taking the lead and direction from the state parties because they're the ones who also have that exact same mission and are in the trenches every day with the campaigns uh, trying to make progress. What kind of organization is Stack? Is it a for-profit, non-profit? The structure of Stack is, is an LLC. You can't do only election work uh, as uh, a non-profit, right? There are restrictions on what a 501c3 can do with elections. There's even restrictions on what 501c4s can do. 
Um, and so, you know, Stack is structured in a way that lets it work directly with the party and campaigns, but it has a philosophy around reinvesting as much as it can legally back into its mission. And so, like a lot of organizations that have started up in the space, they've tried to use the best of a, of a for-profit model um, within the legal constraints of what the FEC says, you know, nonprofit can and can't do in the space. How big is it? How many people work there? Not the largest organization in the world. Um, you know, it's got, I think, 16 uh, staff members at this point that work directly with the state parties. It might have grown since I've, I've stepped away. So does that mean it charges for its services then if it's, um, if it's a LLC? It has to. Any organization that works with the party cannot offer it in-kind donations uh, in perpetuity, right? This is a campaign finance issue more than anything else. In order to stay compliant, it has to take fee-for-service. And that's a hard thing to obtain from state parties. Was it well adopted? The key, I think, success is that Stack was founded with state party buy-in and input. Um, so Martha Laning, who um, you know really uh, thought this through with, with a couple other advisors, was the former chair of, of the Wisconsin State Party. And so a lot of Stack is... Um, founded from her experiences of leading a battleground state party. And so there's been a lot of recognition around the, the quality of technology um, available to the party that the party's been grappling with, sometimes in political articles that you can go go read. Um, and so, you know, being the organizer that she is, uh, Martha went and, and talked to her other chairs and, and talked to other organizations about, you know, what is it that you actually need? What does it actually want? And, and got a list of things that they would actually be willing to engage with. And, you know, as any good founder, if you can identify needs in the market and figure out willingness to pay before you even found an organization, it's generally going to be pretty successful. And so Stack kind of hit the ground running and, and got immediate adoption by uh, a majority of the state parties uh, within the first year. I read that it was funded by Eric Schmidt. Did it receive substantial uh, startup funding from him? Like any organization, you have to to put you have to get bring on capital to be able to hire your your first staff. There was a lot of organizations that had gotten founded after the 2016 election that had taken on a lot of capital and, and ended up not getting great adoption. And so there was different funders at the time looking for something that that was more of a uh, a sure bet. And so when kind of Martha went out and tried to start bringing on partners, uh, there was a lot of different interested parties because she'd already gotten buy-in from uh, her clients. The largest investors in the space were, were interested in more of a sure bet, um, and Eric was like among them, um, but amongst a group of investors. Do you know who else was part of that? Uh, I actually don't know the full details of every funder um, and kind of the funding amounts of the organization. Some of them have published public uh, blogs. So Chris Saka uh, published that, you know, he also supported the organization. It's on his uh, blog and that's public information. He's another billionaire. Yeah, he's another uh, large funder interested in, in helping uh, democratic ideals and, and the party. Do you have a sense of how much Schmidt put in? I don't. But if we're talking about a 16 person organization, we're not really necessarily talking about very large amounts of money, right? If it, I mean, did that money go to fund more than staff? Um, so Stack is trying to figure out what level of 
services and product it's building. We talked a little bit about earlier, you know, the requirement that you take fee for service, um, but almost no tech company is profitable in its first five years if it's a product company. And, and the FEC recognizes that. And you can spend capital on, on building things. Um, and so the you know, fee for service side was getting that requirement from the FEC. And then there was some, some product build um, happening as well. So, I mean, there's not much out there about Stack. What sort of things were you building and what sort of services were you offering, at least while you were there? Yeah, so Stack uh, very much believes in centering the work uh, of those who are really doing the work every day. And, and in Stack's world, that's the state party staff in leadership. They're the ones who are in the trenches, who are working with campaigns and who are working uh, to get the work done. And that's part of Stack's success is taking lead and direction from those state parties. And so you know, if you're interested in finding more about the exact kind of type of work and type of product Stack is, is working on, um, the state parties are always available uh, to talk about that. They have the full breadth in view because they're working with the Stack staff every day. Uh, and so I, I recommend that you reach out to them. Yeah, I haven't really talked to them about that. There have been a series of uh, consultants and groups that have targeted state parties for uh, technical services before Stack Labs. Do you know if Stack, the people running it, took advantage of what had gone before them, talked to those people? So again, when Martha was thinking about how do we make sure that this organization is successful, she did a significant amount of like fact-finding with different organizations. I'm not 100% sure who was part of those discussions because they were before I was, was at Stack. What I do know is, is she worked closely with making sure that she was understanding the needs of, of her fellow chairs uh, before giving them a prescriptive um, set of things that she was going to go do for them. I think a lot of consultancies, a lot of organizations say that we have the answer for you. Here it is. Um, you should do what we tell you. And Stack purposely avoided that that approach and said, you know, what are your problems? What, what are you dealing with every day? What is it that you, you need solved? Um, and that listen first approach uh, was a core part of starting the organization. What was your job and what did you learn doing it there? Yeah. So, um, you know, my title was, um, you know, products and innovation lead. Uh, my, my role was to kind of investigate new opportunities for the state parties based on the problems they brought to us. Um, and so I talked to a lot of founders, a lot of tech organizations, tried to understand the ecosystem, um, to be able to um, help solve some of those problems that the state parties brought to us. What was successful in that? Like, who did you connect with state parties that you think did prove to be pretty valuable? Yeah, so there was a, there was a lot of different organizations that, that utilize kind of the state party network. Um, you know, I think one of them, one of the most successful, interesting, wasn't even a, a product, but more of a service, which was um, Blue Bonnet, who I know you've, you've talked to those founders. State parties uh, have a limited budget and they need a lot of help. And so do the campaign down ballot campaigns interacting with technology. This gets the idea of implementation. And so Blue Bonnet uh, was a group of, of um, recent graduates that, that went to STEM college students um, and recruited them to kind of work on campaigns and with state parties. And so we formed a partnership there uh, to help um, different organizations uh, utilize different technologies out in the space. Um, we also helped qualify you know, a couple of the newest organizations in the space and, and plug them into you know, who was interested in them. A lot of 
things that we did were host community calls where different founders could talk directly to the states. This was a big deal after um, COVID uh, because you know ASDC meetings had gotten canceled because no in-person events were happening. And so how does a tech organization actually get in front of a very busy uh, state party? And so we helped connect founders to to the state parties and get their tools implemented. Like who? Like what? Because you know those those agreements are between the state parties um, and those founders. Uh, you can talk to the state parties about the tools they used in the twenty twenty election. Okay, fair enough. Tell me more about your experience there. Like, what did you like and not like about working at Stack? Yeah, so it was incredibly exciting, and you know there was such a good culture there around working together to solve these problems um, that the state parties were bringing to us because we were all so mission aligned and we were all so dedicated to what was happening. It was a great place um, to work, but also because of what we were trying to do, it was a little bit daunting at times. Having seen civil like the, the politics from the outside, right, the, the, through different actions and, and different interactions, kind of working on politics from the inside, you really start to understand what are the trade-off decisions that that these state parties are having to make um, and kind of the, the brutal nature of their day-to-day of dealing with the press and dealing with campaigns and, and not having a lot of direct power, but having a lot of indirect influence um, and then dealing with the budget constraints of that. And so you really start to uh, like empathize with the staff and the leadership of the state parties and, and the decisions that they're having to make, which, you know, when it comes to September and October of, of the 2020 election is a lot. I've been kind of through some emotional roller coasters with two failed startups, you know, two marches, uh, but nothing kind of was even close to watching election results come in uh, during the 2020 election in, you know, some states that we worked in seeing, you know, which programs were successful and which ones weren't having worked with those state leaders so closely on, on some of those initiatives. And, and it was a lot. Um, and so, you know, I would say one of the best working experiences, but also one of the most stressful working experiences because of the nature of, of the 2020 election. Is it your sense that stack is like, solidly built and going to go forward into the future. A lot of these sort of organizations don't always, you seem pretty positive about what it was doing. What, what's your sense of its durability? I have faith in stack because I have faith in the people. Um, you know, Martha, uh, keeps the, the organization focused on those state party issues, but she also in previous lives was, um, a financial executive for uh, Target, and so she's used to running budgets. She's used to running the numbers. So many of these these organizations don't have someone focused on the books, um, and so she's very good at you know building a budget. One of the best budgeting processes I'd ever been through, and, and making sure that the organization has a stable financial footing. And then I'm really excited because they just brought on Nicole Arrow uh, as CEO um, to run the day to day. And she's got a long history of working for the Obama team and then working in organized labor and and really working in a lot of large coalitions with a lot of strong personalities. And she consistently does well in getting everyone on the same page and listening to different interests and and working on different uh, conflicting perspectives that often cause a lot of organizations to stumble. Um, And then there's great technologists working at the organization uh, handling the day-to-day problems like Micah Honeycutt, um, you know, Shannon, everyone at that organization, um, is really solid. And that was part of the core strategy of, of trying to hire a team that 
was unique and could keep an organization going. And a lot of Silicon Valley founders will tell you, you don't invest in an idea or you don't invest in um, you know, a business, you invest in a team of people. Um, and that's why I think Stack is going to continue to do well. Why'd you leave and where'd you go? Yeah, so a friend forwarded me an opportunity uh, that was too good to be true. Uh, new initiatives at Auth0. And What's Auth0? Yeah, so Auth0 is, an, is a, a tech company that builds um, login, secure login and, and single sign-on technologies for any technology company. So it's a tech company for tech companies. Um, and because of the changing security requirements and um, identity providers, so an identity providers like Facebook or G Suite or, or any of the other things that you can use to do one of those logins with something else, because of that changing landscape and the security around it, um, a lot of these builders, these developers don't want to constantly update that themselves. It's not their core business, right? NGP Van doesn't build login software. It builds political software and, and nonprofit software. And so if you can outsource that to an organization that just focuses on it and focuses on it really well, um, that's an enticing business and an enticing product for a lot of people. Um, and the market seems to agree. Uh, it's in the news. Uh, Otzier got acquired by Okta, which, which builds a lot of um, enterprise security software uh, for $6.7 billion, which is a, is a mind-blowing number. They've got this successful tools for developers, um, sp- specifically login and, and identity tools for developers. And so they've got a, a new initiatives team built in, in the office of the CTO that works on kind of the next big uh, areas of growth for Auth0. And they were looking for a product manager to help kind of organize those ideas and, and operationalize them. And it seemed you know like a, an incredibly fun opportunity. I was like, well, sure, I'll throw my hat in the ring. Uh, seven interviews later, which the interview process at a, at a Silicon Valley tech company versus uh, a political tech company are, are much different affairs. Um, they thought I was a good fit. I kind of you know, pinched myself when I heard. Um, and it's hard for political tech companies to compete uh, you know, dollar for dollar with an offer um, from Silicon Valley. And, and you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, stakes are higher in my life. I've got a mortgage. I'm, I'm not the same place I was in my 20s. And kind of faced with that uh, that opportunity uh, versus where I was at, it was it was hard to say no to. Uh, understandable. You leave behind though the mission in politics, which you have been carrying since the Trump election and the marches. Do you have any thoughts about the political technology space on the progressive Democratic side that you'd like to share at this point, having at least temporarily moved on? Yeah, I mean. One thing to know, I mean, this is a message for a million people, that market, political technology market is so hard to start a business in because of what I talked about earlier around those those differences between where your costs are as a business and developing technology and, and where your revenue comes from. One of the things in any startup is you're supposed to iterate quickly and then, you know, based on what you learn, pivot and then iterate again and then pivot and then you build a, a business that's sustainable. Well, if the only time that you can ever learn everything is every two years during a major cycle and you're supposed to somehow for two years build. And if you don't get it right, the first cycle or the second cycle, you can't take that learning and continue a business because you don't have the money to pay the staff. Um, and so there's got to be a way for the ecosystem 
to stabilize some of these startups and some of these organizations that are building incredibly needed technology and tools kind of between cycles and when there's not a spotlight on like a, an election like the 2020 election. Otherwise, it's not going to have the same level of innovation that other industries have, and it's not going to move forward uh, very quickly. And so, I mean, if there's one thing I can look back on is is just the, the incredible hard work um, of any founder in this space or any organization in this space in, in making it work as a business. There's a lot of pieces of software in that space that are not only tested every two years. They're tested along the way. Maybe more of the difficulty in the market is how small it is on one side, how various it is. On the small side, I heard an interesting stat. I don't know if it's true that there's as much money spent on political technologies in the U.S. as we spend on cleaning pools. <laughs> the challenges of a small market mean that you can't necessarily build huge teams or pay huge amounts. The challenge is how do you get from cycle to cycle? How do you stay around long enough to build a client base, especially when if you're in campaigns, the campaigns go away, right? You, you They churn away from you. It's been interesting to talk to you. Is there a question I didn't ask that I should have? Um, no, I think, I mean, I think you touched on everything. I just wanted to reiterate how invaluable of a resource this was, uh, you know, when I was in the space. That this podcast you're speaking this about? This podcast. Uh, because I would, Tell me I would, more. <laughs> I would listen uh, at work. It's hard to find some of these organizations, right? It's hard. Marketing is, is itself a business problem. And so... You know, I would listen when I would have time. Sometimes I'd listen on the weekend. I'd go for a run. I'd listen to the podcast. And I would hear some founder building something. And there was many an email that got sent out after listening to a podcast being like, I heard I heard you on The Great Battlefield. You know, I'd love to talk to you more about how your technology could help solve some problems that, that the state parties are having um, or that a different organization's having. And so there was a lot of good connections just based off the podcast uh, that happened. And I think it's an invaluable part of of the ecosystem. A lot of organizations don't want to talk to the general press because there's a lot of risk that comes along with that. But talking to someone who's been through it before, uh, who knows the the same struggles that they are, uh, is a much different prospect, and I think is a is an invaluable part of the ecosystem. So thank you. Well, I appreciate the compliment. Um, thanks for for t giving your time today. Anything else you want to say? No, I, I appreciate it. I, mean, I will say everyone who keeps on doing the good work, uh, I appreciate all of, all of the ecosystem at this point. Well, thanks much. Well, I thought it might be fun since you were, as you said, <laughs> uh, making trouble on Twitter after the announcement to just give you a chance to, I don't know, take a couple swings or whatever you want to do. Let me start by saying, Sam, um, after... We did our last interview. We had some fairly big news out of one of the companies you work for, NGP Van, Every Action, which, as you know, I was a, f a founder of the NGP side. And your reaction to that online through Twitter, couple, just a couple tweets, was provocative. It seemed to have a different feeling to it than some of the things that we talked about just like a week or two before. So it seemed only fair, I thought, to give you a little bit more time to react uh, to that sale. What did you think when you saw NGP is being merged with two other social good companies and valued at an astronomical number? 
you had worked there, but you'd gone on to two companies subsequently. What went through your mind and why did you feel compelled to like be public about sort of tweaking them or, or however you want to characterize it? Yeah. So, I mean, from my perspective, when I saw it, I got a little bit sick to my stomach as, as my initial reaction. And that's because of seemingly from the outside, so few people benefited from this transaction. One of the things that's common in Silicon Valley West Coast tech companies is they issue direct stock or options to a broad base of employees to try and get buy-in in the organization. And that doesn't seem to be, from my understanding, having talked to multiple mid-level executives at this point and senior executives, that that was on the table for very many people, if any at all. I mean, my understanding is everybody got a bonus. Sure. Um, and so, you know, the additional valuation um, is something to celebrate as an organization, but ownership is something else, right? Having a stake in the business, being able to both vote as a shareholder, but also, you know, as a business leader, you can choose whether you take your profits and reinvest them in the business, in R&D and other aspects, and essentially eat them up in growth um, through acquisitions. And then, then that profit sharing or that those bonuses kind of come off the table, right? Because you're not, you're not making as much money then. Instead, you're building shareholder value, right? You're building the value per share. But if none of your employees own that, those shares, then as you get share value growth, the only people who are benefiting is the capital class. And, and we know, you know, previously that was Insight. Now it's this new private equity group. And so the people who are taking the profits from this are not the same people who are bought into the organization. It's not the clients and it's not the employees. Let's talk about the theory of that, because I've always struggled a bit with, you know, as a person who started a couple of companies, including that one how you ought to arrange it and what is fair down the road. Because I kind of agree with you. I think that in a, well, certainly in a big successful company that you'd want your employees to benefit when the company grew. When I started my second company, um, I put in place something where I said a third of the company I would share on sale with employees that are there you had your own startup. What what do you think is the right way that an enterprise, as it grows, should structure things? When I started with my org, I very much went to everyone who was working for the org and be like, you know, do you, what do you want your compensation to look like? Do you want it more in cash? Do you want it more in stock? If you only have seed capital, you know, your cash on hand is small, and anyone who takes stock as a business decision increases your runway. And the other thing is, and I truly believe this, is people who have ownership of something work harder to maintain it, to make it better. And so not only did it would it have increased my ability to use what limited cash I had as a business decision, but also I believe that the employees of the business, if they had partial ownership, would put in. And I was running it as um, a, a LLC that had two different stocks. Did anyone take stock? Of the people who work for you? Surprisingly, no. <laughs> Everyone wanted the cash. Probably to their benefit because yes. <laughs> you, it, that stock would have been worth nothing. 
Right. right. So it was an economic decision, but it was the employee's choice in that regard. Right. Did you did you believe in the business enough um, to want to take out stock? And so but that's also a much different calculation for, you know, a no revenue seed organization than it is for a growing business. Right. My current employer, it's an open secret because they just sold to Okta for a lot of money. But they had been giving employees um, not just options, but like stock gifts for a number of years, um, all the way down to the individual contributor level, not even just management. Um, and it's a much different culture that it builds within the organization when you're all when you feel ownership, and everyone at the organization feels ownership. Do you feel ownership in the, that big enterprise with your stock grant? Let's contrast the two experiences. So when I interviewed at NGP Van, I did my research. I put forward an ask that I thought was fairly reasonable for the market value of my title and role um, as a product manager. And NGP Van ended up negotiating me down 20%. And their main argument was, well, this is a mission-based tech company. We can't pay market rates. So we've got to pay you under market rate. I'm surprised to hear that because my sense is that they try to pay market rates and they've been pretty good at that. They've definitely salaries are up a lot from when I left. It's not like you're eating ramen every day when you work for NGP Van. No, I think the average person there makes 90 to 100. So, I mean, it's, it's skilled workers. Sure. But if you look at the average pay band of a product manager or a senior engineer or a director, um, that pay band is much lower at NGP Van than it is in the general market. Now, as I said, I was going to contrast the two experiences. So I got, you know, argued down pretty significantly at NGP Van. At Auth0, I interviewed seven times for my role. Um, it was an extensive interview process. I didn't think I was going to get the job. It was pretty competitive. When I did kind of make it to the end, they looked at my ask and they said, well, based on wanting to retain you in the future and where you're at, we're actually going to give you more than you're asking for. Not only are we going to give you more than you're asking for in cash compensation, on top of your cash compensation, we're going to give you a major stock amount. Not I mean, anything that's going to change the course of how the business is run. I don't have much of a say as a, as a minor shareholder, but it was on top of the cash compensation, a significant amount of money. So why did you take the NGP role if you felt you were underpaid at 100000 So I got involved because of kind of the crisis around the 2016 election. And to be a product manager at NGP Van seemed like a dream job. I mean, that's what I told other people at the organization is this seemed on paper as a dream job. It was what I wanted to be doing Um for the organizations that I wanted to work for. And so it seemed to me that it was a place that I could build the type of tools that I wanted to. And so I was invested in the mission. Like many other people at NGP Van, you know, they appreciate the work that they're doing for the world. I just hope that everyone else is not accepting that pay cut um, to do that now that, you know, it seems to be in a, a business that is looking to build shareholder value like any other businesses. Well, I think it's always been a business to try to both be a good business and to try to serve progressive clients. And but it's not serving progressive clients anymore. I mean, one of the organizations that it pulled on serves ExxonMobil and BP as creating this marketing grants for small innovations to kind of put a little 
plastering on all the damage that they've done to the world. And so NGP Van serves only the Democrats and nonprofits and right. That's a separate company that they were merged with. That's doing, I mean, you're working for a company that serves all exactly the same organizations that you're sort of now complaining about. But the difference is no one is arguing that it's a, a mission-based company and we should all take pay cuts for it. I mean, there's a there's a difference in mindset when you kind of come to the table and say, hey, you know, based on the good that we're trying to do in the world, we are expecting that our employees absorb um, some of the, the cost of running a tech company by taking less of uh, a compensation than the average market would. Yeah, there are organizations that I'm not excited um, that, you know, the currently publicly traded company that I, that I work for serves, but they're not making the same argument, right? They're saying that we're a business that provides identity and authentication um, security for any business that comes to our door. One of the things that you put on your tweet was hashtag unionize or something like that. That's also a tricky thing in the in the world of tech, right? Are you going to be advocating for unionization at Auth0? Talking about the, again, difference in the onboarding process where the business offered more than I was asking for and wanted to make sure that I was compensated equitably. I don't see the same need, but if others at the organization felt like it wasn't treating the employees fairly and there was an open conversation, I would definitely be at the table for that conversation. But because of the difference in experience, I don't feel like that's something I need to push for. So is it more about like whether your salary is uh, where you want it to be or is it a broader principle? I think it's about how the organization approaches its employees. Does it think that they are part of the growth of the business or are they cogs in the wheel to churn out value and then to be replaced. I mean, if you just look at the turnover comparison between the two organizations, where if you look at the alumni crew of, of every action NGP van, I mean, when I left, they hired a replacement for me uh, within a year and a couple months, he was gone. And now they're trying to find a replacement for him. The amount of people that cycle out of engineering and product is significant at that organization. And that points to a larger cultural issue, especially if everyone going there thinks it's like I did, where it was, this is a dream job. I'm, I'm, getting to work on the things that I find personally valuable, not just um, lucrative. Uh, but considering so many cycle out and there's this you know, development of a large valuation, there's a question on whether the corner office thinks of it, the business in the same way as its employees. I hope that you're kind of wrong about how they think about things. My sense from my friendships with those people in charge is that, that they do very much consider their employees part of the team. And I've always heard that. I know that when I, you know, that the first few people that I hired are still there and still playing important roles along with uh, quite a number of other people that go back to my time. I have no idea whether the changes in employee duration, I don't know whether that's any different than it ever was. I, you know, I think a lot of times when we're hiring we make mistakes. I've never been able to get it right more than half the time, whether or not I do seven interviews or one. Maybe they made a mistake in your role or the person after you, and it wasn't a good fit. Or, or maybe they, you know, they didn't use your talents or the person after you as well as they should have. I have absolutely no idea. 
I guess one of the things that I was kind of wondering about is there's there's definitely an impulse to not burn your bridges in the world, right? Like, and I remember back to when I left one of my first jobs out of college and I wrote a note. It was probably a 25-person data company that was in the redistricting space. And I was a, a minor programmer there doing data stuff. And I wrote a note to the owner CEO when I left and I said, look, my health care doesn't continue after and I really think you should change your policy. And I kind of wrote a note without any perspective about what benefits cost a small company and how hard it is at that stage anyway to do things. And I think I burnt a bridge there with the tenor of that note. It cost me because I had applied to the Harvard government department as a PhD candidate. And I didn't get in because a professor called that owner and asked him about me. And apparently he didn't say the finest things possibly because of that, that note I had written. So do you not care about that? Or you obviously have a concern about this, the progressive political ecosystem, right? You wanted to talk about things. Is it out of care for the ecosystem that you're saying this? Is what, what are, what's motivating you to, to, to take some shots to your 90 followers? Yeah. <laughs> 90 followers. It's true. Uh, I mean, there's a realization that the tech that we use in campaigns and, you know, for the, you know, one of the most consequential things that the country can do, which is elect a president, is not of the same quality that a lot of other technology is. And we've talked a lot about why, right? It's a smaller market. It's a very hard market to operate in because it's only cash flush at certain parts of the year. But part of that is the mindset of the people running those companies, right? The idea of grow at all costs. And once that you've established a monopoly over a certain part of the market, use the capital that you gain from that not to invest in the product that you've built to for those clients as part of that monopoly, but to take that capital and go into a new market and try to establish a new monopoly and to move horizontally instead of trying to make the best product that you can. And so I do think that the way that NGP van is being run is growth at all costs. And that is not benefiting the people who end up using that software. Now you work for Tuvin, right? You think she's not trying to make the best product? <laughs> well, I was just getting to that. I do think that there is a crew of very dedicated, you can work for the federal government during uh, an administration where the leadership isn't who you agree with doing great work for the American people and trying to make it better. But there's a lot of disruption caused by the political leadership. In a business that's a little bit different, right? There isn't a political leadership. There's just an, like a set of shareholders and, and equity holders. But I don't think that those shareholders at the top has the same mindset that the employees do. And I think the employees, to your point, are doing everything they can to move the mission forward. I did that when I was there too. But if there's a disconnect between the corner office and how they view the business and how its employees view the business, then the employees need a seat at the table. And that was where I got to that unionized hashtag. Yeah, I think I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's an interest in a union if they wouldn't recognize it. Um, I think they already recognized the mobilized unit, right? Well, and it was interesting. I mean, there was multiple employees when I was there that were talking about making a union push, but most of them just chose to leave. They chose instead of make this organization, that organization that I'd want to work at in the long term, I'm just going to go 
seek a new job elsewhere. Well, what um, I've wondered so, about is like, you know, my, my, what near and dear to me was the political market, the campaign market, the, the battle between the two parties, and it still is. But Stu's bet on moving to the nonprofit market, which is certainly paid off in shareholder value, um, as, as we've noted, it may really benefit the campaign market because you have that, you have ironed out then some of that cyclicality and you have in the long run, the resources perhaps to build. Well, that's been the argument that has been made to the party time and time again, is that all of the development that is going to the nonprofits is both creating uh, stable sales for NGP van and, and causes them not to have to deal with that cyclical market. Some of that development is useful for the party itself um, and campaigns. You know, that is not completely inaccurate. What is different is not, you know, every action's code base is not the exact same as vote builders code base. And so there's a lot of innovation happening to get nonprofit clients that is not moving backwards into the vote builder code base. Now, I know this is something that Amanda is heavily focused on trying to move a lot of that code into vote builder. So it's, it's valuable, but it's kind of being built in a way where they're trying to get as many sales as possible on that every action side, build the next thing for the next big uh, enterprise nonprofit. Um, And some of that's very difficult to move backwards. And so some would argue that the original business, that campaign original business is feeding the growth of that nonprofit side and not seeing much in return. I don't know. It's all that is long past me. But my sense is that most of the growth is on the nonprofit side. It is right. But that original product, the generation of vote builder was almost completely paid for by the party. Some nonprofits came in, other political nonprofits came in that wanted to do electioneering and and bought into van and vote builder. But those campaign businesses created the platform that the nonprofits are getting value out of. Um, And so in terms of which side's benefiting which, there's an open question. Hopefully it is, as you've noted, potentially benefit of both, right? Yeah. I kind of marvel at sort of the continued growth of the business. I was worried when we were a $5 million business that we had filled the market already because we had every congressional campaign just about. There was a hint of a potential IPO in some of the press that came out around the acquisition, which would be interesting because generally to IPO, you need a whole bunch of underwriting and and someone to kind of come in and look at the business. And so if that is true and that's their goal, it would be kind of interesting to see what some outside eyes view of, of that growth and is it sustainable. The other side is, is how many people are going to benefit from that IPO? Is it just going to be the private equity firm and a limited group of shareholders? I would certainly be with you in rooting for employees to participate broadly. And I'd certainly be with you in rooting for the best possible product for both nonprofits and for the campaign. And I hope that that is a priority, as you put it, was in the corner office. I'm with you there. Any other thoughts about this rather major transaction in the political tech space? So, I mean, this is something that now that I'm as far removed as I am, I don't know kind of what's happening on the inside, but bringing on this many different platforms, there's an open question of 
are there actually efficiencies? You want to build as much onto a, a central platform as possible. And one of the conversations I had after um, kind of like asking, getting historical information when I was working there was, you know, did anyone make the case after the insight capital came in to take a pause, look at the core infrastructure of every action slash vote builder and make sure that it was ready to bring on all of these new businesses that were going through acquisition, right? Is this a platform that can integrate well and play nice with all these new platforms that are being brought on? Or do we need to pause and build a significant thing on top of or replace some of that core infrastructure? And the answer was no, no one made that case. Um, And a lot of these platforms that were coming on when I was there were having a hard time integrating onto that core platform. And so hopefully this new injection of capital allows them to take a pause and to make sure that these two new businesses and all the businesses that they previously acquired can actually truly integrate well, because then you get efficiencies, right? All the customers benefit when there's a lot less platforms that you have to maintain on the back end if they're all kind of extensions of each other. If not, it's going to become a very hard thing to manage uh, across the different businesses and the different platforms, which wins a priority decision, which doesn't. Well, it's always been a hard thing to manage and a complicated thing to manage, which is probably why I'm not managing it. <laughs> but well, hopefully someone makes the case this time. I mean, I do. That. I, I'm confident, actually, that that case was made and things were discussed quite a bit, whether or not like along the way, there were a lot of hard decisions about whether to rebuild platforms from scratch or not with any uh, technology base. Those are excruciating decisions, I think, whether uh, to go back and start again or not. And often starting again uh, messes the company up worse. There are a lot of businesses now that have found paths to slowly replace pieces um, and methodologies that have been done in the last 10 years that have been openly published between like Airbnb and others, obviously a much bigger market availability for them. But you don't have to build a whole new platform that no one's using until you're ready to cut over. Those days are kind of done. You start with which piece do you want to replace and how do you integrate it to the other pieces and then build back up from there. And that new piece will offer new capabilities when it's released. And so you don't get rid of the whole previous thing. You get rid of small pieces of it. And then over the course of a number of years, you've replaced enough pieces that it is a new infrastructure. But again, each piece has its own discrete value and offers new capabilities itself. And so how you chart that out, how you roadmap that, so that you can cleanly replace your underlying infrastructure while adding value is very difficult. I, I admit that's true. But this is not something that hasn't been done, right? This has been done a lot over the last 10 years. And so can uh, every action follow those paths that have been successful uh, in order to kind of reduce their operating costs and increase their development speed? That's the other upside of that is once you have an infrastructure that's easier to build off of, um, your clients benefit by having increased roadmap velocity well it definitely strikes me that your passion is still in product development so you're probably in a good spot for you Um, thanks for taking the extra time to talk to me anything else you want to say no i appreciate uh the conversation and you know hopefully uh maybe lit a a bridge or two on fire but hopefully not all of them (laughs) (laughs) you know um, i'm sure that whoever was your friend before will stay your friend after 
<laughs> I appreciate it. That was Sam Frank. You can find Sam on LinkedIn. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.